You're listening to Reading Glasses, a show about book culture and literary life designed to help you read better. I'm writer, filmmaker, and book devourer Mallory O'Mara. And I'm Bria Grant, actress, filmmaker, and e-reader. This episode, we're talking about how books get made and interviewing editor Nava Wolf. But first... What are you reading, Bria? I'm reading a book called Warcross. Do you know about this book? No. Um, It's by Marie Lu, and people say that, and it's true... People say it, and it's also true, that it is sort of like uh, Ready Player One, but it's with a female lead. Oh. And um, she is like a teenager. I don't know if she's a teenager. She's not a teenager. She's like a young adult with a um, crazy what? colored hair, and she basically is like a person who's like on her last dime, but there's this interactive game that's all across the world, and she's a really good hacker, and in the opening ceremony of the sort of like uh, giant you know, they're having like this huge event. She hacks into it, and it sort of sets, and then everybody notices that, and it sort of sets her life in a different direction. Wow. So it's, I haven't actually read Ready Player One, which Neither is weird. Have I. Wow. That's weird. Well, I mean, it's not weird for me. I don't read a lot of sci-fi. It's come up in the library for me, but like not a good time. Actually, it's only come up once because there's such a long wait on it, and then I was going to read it, and I didn't because of whatever reason, and now... The movie is out, so I'm never going to read it as far as I... I probably should go see that movie, and I don't know if I'll ever read it. Or I'll read it and then go see the movie. I don't know. Or you can listen to Will Wheaton. I know. I do. I, that's what I should do is just listen to Will Wheaton do it. Um, but I was... I actually got it specifically because of Ready Player One, because people were like, if you liked Ready Player One, you should check out Warcross. And it is really good. It's a... She created a really cool world. It's very... It's like an interactive gaming virtual reality situation, but uh, really cool main character. And it's definitely like... I don't... It's YA-ish. It's very accessible. So any anybody any age, I think, could pick it up. Hmm. What are you reading, Mallory? I'm reading a book called Midnight's Children by Salman Rushdie. I know it. I've never read him before, but... Um, Alan and I have a thing where we switch off every month and I, he I pick one book for him to read and he picks one book for me to read and this is his month uh, April's Ma- Alan pick Alan Alan's staff pick in the Mallory and Alan library and it's amazing so far I'm only like 50 pages in but it's just like a sprawling historical epic about this guy uh Salim and he was born on the like the moment of India's independence and like his whole life and like how his life interacts with the history of India the writing is so incredible and lush and amazing it's one of those like it's taken me a long time to get through because like every time I like every five sentences there's just like an amazing sentence and I'm like damn I gotta just think about that for a second. It's so good. Wow. Yeah, I really, really love it. Um, that's what it, what was your April pick for for Alan? He's gonna be reading Gulp by Mary Roach. Oh, nice. That's because good. He's, she's my favorite nonfiction author and he's never read her. So mine was Warcross by Marie Lou. Yes, and mine is Midnight's Children by Salman Rushdie. Sean, what are you reading? Still the same book. Tell you we didn't I actually didn't I cut that out of that episode. Cause you didn't cause t- tell people what you're reading. Can you hear you? You can't hear you. No. Well, say what you're reading and we'll repeat it. What is he reading? Sean is reading Wait for Spring Bandini by John Fonte. That's what Aussie Smooth is reading. Aussie Smooth. Aussie Smooth is reading. (laughs) Sean is from Australia and has a very smooth Australian accent. So we call, we're going to call him Aussie Smooth. <laughs> Pretty great. We imported this this rich, smooth Australian export just for you guys. We're going to take a moment to answer a recommendation request from Melissa. Melissa Melissa says, I recently had a discussion about my reading with my sister, and she mentioned that my reading tends to lean to the dark and heavy side, which is true, which which makes me depressed and sad. Some of my favorites include Les Miserables, 
Is that how you pronounce it? I think, yeah. I've never read it. Uh, the Harry Potter series, Outlander, Alias Grace, Burial Rites, A Town Like Alice, The Nightingale, etc., etc. As you can see, most of my reading is heavy and dark. I have enjoyed lighter fare like Mrs. Hemingway. Please help if you can. Bria, what should Melissa read? Oh, man. Melissa, clearly drawn to the dark side. Um... But I think we can find some things that maybe center around darkness, but have a lighter, that are lighter and less heavy. Also, like, less heavy just, like, physically, because these books you named are really huge. I know, Melissa One must you be name, jacked. Yeah, like, yeah, Crime and Punishment? That's a big-ass book, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but also— That's not a book. This is a book. <laughs> could cut that out. No, we're not cutting that out. That's We've our, been waiting to say it. Because we want to do a tote bag that's sh- our Australian sound engineer holding a very big book, and it says, that's not a book. This is a book. It's real tall. It's like as tall John's as us. really red and embarrassed right now. But He's really embarrassed. This is great. Um, since um, she seems to go towards classics, that's the other thing. She seems to like to cover her classics. I was really trying to think of some light classics, which was hard. Yeah. I actually think there are not any. Mm-hmm. Not any except maybe like um like a Pride and a Pride and Prejudice kind of situation. Or um Mid- Midsummer Night's Dream by Shakespeare is very is light. That's a light one. Just like people being sexy in the woods and banging. That's true. That's true. Maybe I should have thought more of sexy in the woods and banging. I don't I'm know. I'm always thinking about sexy banging in the woods. Um one that I feel like you'll agree with, this is a dark has dark themes, but is actually a light book. And it's not yet a classic, but I kind of hope it will be, which is Good Omens by Terry Pratchett and Neil So Gaiman. good. And it's, and it's, although it is heavy, it's about humanity's end. Yeah. It is, it has this dark subject, which obviously she likes. It, it is, it treats it in a light manner. And it's, it's hilarious. It's, it's really so funny. fucking funny. But I think you'll still get the, I think Melissa's probably like drawn to the, um, you know, she wants something with like a. A, a soul, you know, she wants like a, sub, a like the subject to have like a deep meaning for her. Yeah. So I think that that could be like a cool one. What do you think? So my instinct, of course, is to recommend Priest Daddy by Patricia Lockwood, but I feel like I need to retire Priest Daddy because I've talked about it so much on the show. <laughs> um, so I'm going to recommend a book that's totally. So I feel like it's going to be a little bit out of uh, Melissa Melissa's wheelhouse, but it's just so much fun. It's called How to Build a Girl by Caitlin Moran. Uh, she's a British writer, and it's a coming-of-age book about a teenage girl in, I think she lives, I forget where in England she lives, uh, but she's trying to find her own identity, and there are really deep and poignant parts, um, especially because she grows up super poor, and me, as a person who also grew up poor, like, there's some moments that are really, they're wicked real, but the rest of the, it's, the rest of the book is so funny. It's such a funny, hysterical, like that kind of absurd, dry British humor that is such a delight to read. And I think it'll perk Melissa up a little bit. I think that's good. She wants like kind of like a, a deepness with a side of darkness. It's kind of what the meal she's needs looking a for. Chuckle. All right. <laughs> so you can email us your recommendation requests at readingglassespodcast at gmail.com. And as always, we want to thank Danielle, who runs our Facebook group, and Chrissy and Rachel, who moderate our Goodreads page. And we are prepping for our 50th episode yay guys can you believe we're almost at 50 episodes it's a few away don't don't freak out yet we're almost a year old but we're yeah so but we're thinking about for our 50th doing a thing where you guys can ask us questions bookish questions bookish let's limit what is the limits here i mean it's not an ama situation no it's not an ama situation i don't want any weirdos being like what color is your underpants no but not that we'd answer it anyway also mallory's are black That is correct. <laughs> that is always. 
Oh, that is always correct. Right. That's like one of the constants of the universe. It's like you can use my the color of Mallory of my underpants in like a mathematic situation. I <laughs> say underpants. Like I'm, you're wearing like like are you a ninety year old man? I'm wearing a very sexy pair of underpants right now. Actually, <laughs> there's no such thing. Underpants are the things that look like swim trunks from the 1950s. You know what I mean? It's like those I'm are my like Charlie Chaplin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, my underpants are very very tiny and small. All and, right, I believe you. And but they are black and they are I do call them underpants. But anyways, right. you guys can't ask us about you. Plus, why would you need to ask us about we already underpants? Know. Now already, we know. Now we, we know what Mallory's going on. But I feel like anything you want us to n- want to know about our re- our reading lives that we haven't answered on the show, books that we love, maybe if we really love you guys, we'll tell you about books that we don't love because we don't ever talk about that stuff. Like how we our reading life growing up, you know, and anything you guys want to know about about writing, about our work, how we make the podcast, just send them in to readingglassespodcast at gmail.com. Yep. And so we'll answer those on the 50th episode. So I'll start sending them in now and just let us know this is for your 50th episode and we'll make sure we keep those aside for that. Yeah, we're doing, we're going to, yeah, we're going to do a special, special little We're we're 50 episode. We're 50. Yay. So before we talk about how books get made, we're going to take a quick break. Hello, are you looking for a new comedy podcast? In which case, can I draw your attention to the Beef and Dairy Network podcast? It's a fictional industry podcast for the beef and dairy industries. It won Best Comedy at the 2017 British Podcast Awards, and it features wonderful guests such as Greg Davis. To my knowledge, it's the only cow circus that's ever existed in this country. In rural Russia, every small town has a cow circus. Josie Long. You should have a beef. Have a beef with them. I have a beef with you. I will have a beef with you. Come round my house and I'll have a beef with you. And Andy Daly. That virus never existed. There was never any such thing as a mad cow disease. That was all an illusion that uh, Big Lamb came up with. That's the Beef and Dairy Network podcast. Find us at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts from. And I would recommend starting at episode one. Bye. This week, we're having the talk. When one book loves another book very much. Just kidding, guys. But seriously, <laughs> we, we all love books, but how do they get made? Okay, according to a survey I read on the internet, <laughs> so that means it's true, but I do think this is true. 81% of people they have a, think they have a book in them. Not in them. Not like it's like living inside of them. But like they have a book I that do. they can write. <laughs> they open I, on my chest, there's a book. Which is about, in America, 200 million people. Does that sound right? Yeah. Um, in 2012, about 146,000 Americans were classified by the Bureau of Labor and Statistics as authors and writers. So you can see that being a big difference. 200 million versus 146,000. Um, Mallory, do you know how many books actually get published a year? I'm going to say... 500,000. Ah, wow, that was a really good guess. That's the first time I've ever guessed anything well on the show, I think. Um, According to Forbes, it's between 600,000 and a million get published every year. Uh, About half of that are self-published. And about... And of and of those, a lot of those sell less than 250 copies each. Yeah. So, um, if you're looking at, like, Things published by publishing companies, you're actually only looking at between 80,000 and 184,000 new and revised titles. Um, and honestly, I looked this up and the numbers really varied on the internet, but that's like, I mean, that's obviously a huge range, but that's about where we are. So if you think about it, 81% of people think they could write a book, but only between like 
not that many books are actually written and even less are published. Writing books is hard, man. It's really hard, which is why we're going to talk about it. Yes. So if a book is going to be traditionally published as opposed to self-publishing, which is a totally different way of doing things, and we're going to do a separate episode about it. It's just too much information for one episode. Writing the book is half the battle. Mm-hmm. Once a book is written, or at least partially written, the first step for most people is finding a literary agent. And most big publishers only accept submissions from literary agents. Some publishers, both big and small, but more often with small publishers, accept unsolicited manuscripts. And this is also known as the slush pile. Um, and you you usually get a literary agent by sending them a query letter if they're open to queries. And a lot of times agents are not. And that's ba- the, the letter basically says who you are, what your book is. And then if they're into it, they ask for your book. You send it to them. Or the chunk of it that you've written, and then they hopefully they love it and agree to represent it. Okay, and then what do they do? They take out the submission. Yeah, they, they submit do. it to editors mm-hmm. at publishers that think that it be they think it would be a good fit for. Yeah, and this can take weeks or it can take months. Sometimes it can take years. You know, editors read it and they decide whether or not they like it or if it's a good fit for their imprint. Sometimes an editor will really like a book and decide it's not a good fit for the publisher that they work for. Totally. Makes total sense to me. So, Mallory, talk about talk about how your book came to pass. Uh, <laughs> when you love an idea very, very much. Um, <laughs> so I, I my, the book that I just finished last week handed into my editor. Congratulations. Uh, you have your life back. Woo, uh, well, until I get my edit letter from my editor. Sure, sure. <laughs> and I have to go back into not showering. Um, your hair does look particularly clean today. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I showered yesterday. Mm. I did, and I, 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 yeah, I'm clean again. <laughs> I'm clean, I'm eating, I'm seeing I'm the sun. clean again. Um, I am wearing clean clothes that don't have any holes in them. Impressive. It's very impressive. It's very exciting. Uh, so I wrote a nonfiction book. Uh, and so with a lot of nonfiction stuff, you sell it on proposal. So my agent took my book. I wrote my book proposal. My agent took that proposal out and it took months, took a really long. I mean, that, I mean, but that's months is pretty average. I mean, I some people so. like if you're Michelle Obama, you don't like people are going to scoop your scoop your book up immediately. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it can take a really long time. So it took so months. If Michelle Obama. You're listening to this. We know it will be easy for you. Everyone else. Yes. It's going to be much harder. Yes. Just heads up. Uh, and then we started getting editors who were interested, and we started um, Brady, who's my agent, started talking to talking to these editors and figuring out and, um, who would be a good fit. And um, we started having meetings with them, and we had a phone meeting with my current editor, and he we totally gelled. He got my bad jokes, and we have similar music, uh, taste in books, and we both really love Mary Roach. And so uh, he decided to buy my book and so he had to go back to his board of because an editor has to go back and like get a get like it's not just the editor it's a, it's a big like approval process but they decided to buy the book and yeah and then I wrote it had had to finish writing it and that took me about a year so from the time you pitched it to the time you got done writing it what how long was that oh my god the whole process took couple of years yeah that's between getting the agent getting the proposal together but also my my book required me to do a a year's worth of research right but i think most people's books require them because you're not even done right so most books i mean something when we talked to anna akana on the show remember she was talking about she she didn't she talk about that on the show where she she got feedback that they wanted her book to go in like another direction sort of so like you can write the whole thing and then still get feedback and have to redo a bunch of stuff right yeah well i'm uh i'm very very lucky in that my editor uh and i have been literally and and metaf- and uh, spirit not spiritually literally and 
uh, philosophically been on the same page, and I have not really had to change a lot. Oh, that's good. But I did have to do a year's worth of unpaid research on it first. Sure, yeah. So when we talk about, I mean, because people are talking about how great, like, you get a book advance, but it's really not that much money when when you're like, oh, it's been two years. If you you actually do the math of how much, I would make more money working at In-N-Out Burger than I would, would make, than I make as an author. But you're an artist. But I am an artist. That's why I work three jobs so I can feed my cats. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's a and, and something. I mean, this is has been my journey in the arts. We both know that there's so many different pathways to. Even though this is like the traditionally published route, there's so many different ways to get an agent. There's so many different ways to meet an editor. There's so many. Everyone's process is a little bit different. Bria, what what was what was it like to get your comic published? Um. I mean, basically, I just did a similar thing. I wrote a pitch, but it was a lot shorter than a book pitch. So how long – your book pitch was how many pages? Uh, the whole the whole thing, I think, was 60 pages. And that yeah. Two, but 40 pages of that were, were two chapters, uh, sample chapters of the book. I mean, that's crazy. That's like writing – how many people have actually written six – I mean, I wrote a graduate thesis, but other than that, I don't think I've ever written My, 60 pages of anything. Yeah, Well, it's scripts, but – but like straight up, single single spaced. It's a lot. Um, so I wrote up a the, a similar thing, except very much shorter. It was basically, I think we were, I can't remember, but we were like thinking really big on the world of the comic, and we wrote up like twelve issue ideas, and they were like, "Cool, these are great. You can have four. Um, <laughs> and luckily, at the time I knew a artist named Ben Templesmith, an artist and writer, Ben Templesmith, who introduced me to an editor at IDW, and Ben had agreed to do the cover, which super helped me in my pitch. So when he agreed to do that, they were like, cool, he'll do the cover of the first one. So they gave my brother and I, who we co-wrote that that first book together, um, they gave us four issues to do. And then and then from that, you kind of, you just, you start going. Um we looked at artists um, that our editors set us up with. Um, we ended up going with Kyle Strom, who's really awesome. This is for my book called We Will Bury You. Um, and then we started writing scripts. And it's basically, comic books are so collaborative. So I have an artist, a letterer, a colorist, and an editor. And every one of them you give notes with and you talk to through the whole process. So, you know, your artist r- draws up ideas for what your characters are going to look like. Um and you're you basically are going through scripts and you're kind of plotting things out but then your editor's getting feedback on the scripts and then your editor's getting feedback on the comic it is like a long it's a like i remember at the time when we were doing it i was getting so many emails every day just like back and forth like what about this can we change this can we fix this we don't love this idea so once we like solidified the actual comic book script it was still a ton of stuff because it was back and forth between all of the people involved yeah that's what people a lot of people don't realize is that writing a book is really only one part of it and that's why books take so long to come out like and even just with me my book it's only i've only barely been talking to it's my agent and my agent brady and my editor peter and it's just like the three of us but once we get the book done then it has to go and like and all those edits go through but then it has to get copy edited and page proofs which is like how the book is going to look on the page. It has to go to the sales department. It has to go to the art department. We have to figure out the cover of it. Luckily, I already have my author portrait figured out because my <laughs> partner, it, that's how me and my partner met, was him taking my author photo. Uh, but there's a lot, there's so much, that, like, there's, I mean, filmmaking is a, a 
you requires a big crew, but a book does too, at least from a traditionally published standpoint. So many people have to weigh in, so many things have to be done, and that's why when people are like, oh, when's the next book gonna come out? Like, it takes a lot, it's a lot of work. Yeah, for sure. And it's interesting, I mean, it's something Amanda Palmer talked about, where, you know, when you, from when you write it to when you finish it, it's, like, it feels like, it can feel totally different, and then that's set in stone, and that book is there forever. Oh, yeah, well, even the the sample chapters that I wrote, uh, to sell the book, I ended up almost none of that writing is in the actual book because oh, things really? changed. Which is crazy because, like, how many hours do you think you spent on that? Like, I mean, that's like, that is a month months out of your life. Oh, yeah. Of stuff that no one is ever going to see. Yeah. No, it's it, it's so much work. And even, uh, like Amanda said on an earlier episode, like, your relation to, to it changes. Some days I... Some days I'm like, I fucking love this book. Oh my God, it's my baby. I made it. And some days I'm like, I'm going to throw this in the sea. It's a piece <laughs> of garbage. I can't write. I don't know how to write. I should be murdered. And because it's just such a long process. It's not like you're just like, boom, bam, done. Which is the unfortunate thing I think about making any art, of course, is that like then someone consumes it and they can so quickly be like, I read one chapter. Fuck that book. And like you're like, no, someone just spent three years of their life on this and their life is important to them. Yeah. Well, that's what it started. I started getting freaked out because my book is already available to like it's on Goodreads like as a thing. Which freaks me out because I'm not, I just finished writing it like yesterday. Has anybody reviewed it? No, but that, and that's like, that's the problem with some of the review things is that you can go, as soon as a book is up on Goodreads, you can give it a review. Oh, that's weird. Even, when it, even before it's out, even before advanced review copies come out. Wow. That's why, that's one of the many reasons I know that we hurt some people's feelings when they wrote, when we said that you shouldn't badly review books. But I, one of the many reasons why I never negatively review books is I know so many authors who that happens to that I kind of feel like I need to balance out the karma in the universe a little bit. Yeah, and also, I mean, look, we're talking about how hard it is to actually get a book made, but it's also hard to put yourself out there. I mean, like, anytime you're make, making art, you're taking some a risk. You're taking a risk with not only your ego, but just with your whole person. I remember, when, I mean, when I directed a movie, I remember I started saying, it's not just my face on that screen, it's my soul. Like, it's like people are judging my soul, and, like, that's what it felt like. Yeah. And I'm sure that's how a lot of, um, especially, like, narrative writers or, or nonfiction writers, if you're, like, in the center of your book, like you are, like, it just feels like you're really putting yourself out there and you're basically laying bare and letting people judge you. Oh, yeah, and and another thing people have to remember is that after this entire process happens, the book, like, you get an agent... The book is written, it gets you you sell it to an editor who edits the book and then it gets copy edited and page proofs and it gets a cover and all this stuff happens. The sales team might not like it, the book's not going to come out as soon as it's done. It's not it's not like books aren't cookies, guys. Right. Like the sales Wish team books were cookies. I know. You finish reading it and then you just eat it. Oh, that'd be great. Um would really cut down on clutter. But not calories. Because <laughs> I would be, I would have to run, do a lot more running than I do. Um, a, a sales team might decide that they want to hold back the book. Like my book is going to be done, 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 like this year. But me and my editor had a meeting where we were like, okay, well, when when should we release it? You know, January is kind of a slow month. But, you know, March is Women's History Month. And my book it has to do with women's history. So, like... It it it's a very complicated process, and then even when the book, so when then the book gets, it, like you pick a publication date, public like all the publicity and marketing stuff. It's a whole, it's one book, but there's a lot that goes on into it. It's a whole team of people that need to come together to get this book made hmm. and out yeah. into the world. Yeah, it's a crazy process. Yeah, if you have questions about how books get made, you can send them to Reading Glasses Podcast at gmail.com. Before we talk to editor Nava Wolf, we're going to take a quick break. 
film critic April Wolf and host of the Maximum Fun podcast, Switchblade Sisters. Do you love genre films? Do you love female filmmakers? Do you love discussions on craft? If your answer is yes, you'll love Switchblade Sisters. Every episode, I invite one female filmmaker on, and we talk in depth about their fave genre film and how it influenced their own work. So we're talking horror, action, sci-fi, fantasy, bizarro, and exploitation cinema. Mothers, lock up your sons, because the Switchblade Sisters are coming for you. Available at MaximumFun.org or wherever you find your podcasts. So here we are with senior editor at Saga Press, Nava Wolf. Nava, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. What are you reading? Oh, man. Uh, so this is actually a great time to be asking me this question because usually the answer is very little between all of my work reading. But last week I was away for Passover with my family, so I actually had a vacation and some time for fun reading. And I read two books by two extremely different Naomi's. Uh, the Power by Naomi Alderman. Oh, and yeah. Spinning Silver. Yeah, right? Uh, uh, yeah. So I read The Power, and then I read Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik. Super different. Both amazing. Uh, the Power totally wrecked me in the best way. Um, which, it sounds like you guys read it. Yes. Yes, right? It's, uh, yeah. It's, it's uh, one of those wonderful punch to the guts that you're like, I this is making me feel too many feelings, but I love it so much. Yes, yes, exactly. I could not stop reading it. I was sitting by the pool and just devouring it. And people were like, what is this book? And I was like, I can't really explain it to you because <laughs> you would be mad at me about it. <laughs> yeah. But it's so great and I love it so much. Um, and then I read Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik, which doesn't come out until the summer, I believe. But um, it's this incredibly rare beast of a gorgeous fantasy novel with a Jewish protagonist. Um, awesome. which I've never read before and I've never found anything like that. And it's fantastic. It also has a special place in my heart because Naomi expanded it off a, a novelette that she wrote for my first anthology, The Starlet Wood. She wrote this novelette, Spinning Silver, and then she asked if she could expand it into her next novel, which was, of course, something we were very excited about. And it's a really cool thing reading a, a novel that I read in its original form and edited in its original form and has now grown into new life, which is a great book. So can you tell us a little bit about Saga Press? Sure. Um, so Saga is Simon & Schuster's science fiction and fantasy imprint. We publish science fiction, fantasy, and horror. I want to specify for adults. I specify that specifically because we're sort of a weird beast in that we live under the umbrella of the children's group at Simon & Schuster, but we are an adult imprint. Sidebar, for a while I kept saying people because of this weird thing, you know, I work on adult science fiction and fantasy. And then I realized that I had been telling people that I had been working on erotica when in fact I do not. Uh -huh. <laughs> I was just trying to separate it from my children's <laughs> children's book days, which I do not, I, we don't publish for children. Um, but I used to for a long time. That is so, amazing. Yes. Uh, we don't do erotica or at least we haven't yet. Um, but we do do adult science fiction, fantasy, and horror. We grew out of the children's uh, the children's group. John Anderson, who's the head of the children's group, is he's the president of the group. He's a huge nerd, and he realized that science that Simon and Schuster had not done science fiction in a really long time, and he decided to go for it. So he got permission, and he brought Joe Monty in. I was in the children's group at the time, and he asked me to move over to our adult 
science fiction fantasy imprint, which I did, and it's been amazing. So what does the daily life of an editor look like? Oh, man, that's such a good question with a very hard answer. Um, There is no average day. Most days are a game of whack-a-mole, handling one million small critical things like, I don't know, writing jacket copy, reviewing interior passes, meeting with designers, discuss cover art, uh, working on sales conference notes, writing tip sheet copy for Salesforce, recording sales pitches for the audio on recording sales pitches, basically audio sales pitches for the sales group, um, presenting at sales conference, meeting with a million different people, responding to email. Basically, it's just handling whatever comes up. Um, on the days when I really need to get some editing done, which you think would be the main part of my job because I'm called an editor, um, I actually can't do it at my desk. I hide from my office. Either I go to a conference room or a coffee shop across the street, uh, which is really the only way that I can get a few uninterrupted hours of the manuscript. So what are the things you look for when you want to acquire a book? So this is going to sound super cliche, but I want a book that I can't put down. And I know that's not specific enough. And everyone who's listening is like, but how, what, how do I write a book that she will want are not going to be satisfied by this answer. But all of my favorite books are the ones that keep me up reading later than I should have been because I didn't want to stop, even though I knew I'd be tired in the morning. Um, they're the ones I couldn't get out of my head, even when I wasn't reading them. Uh, There are definitely specific qualities that can contribute. Like, for example, I'll follow a compelling character down any dark path, and I'm a sucker for a killer voice, and complex, seamless world building is totally my my kryptonite. Um, But ultimately, it boils down to being grabbed by the book. Like, you can have a great character, and I'm still not grabbed. You can have, like, a really satisfying voice, and it's still just not pulling me in. But any book that I acquire, I am going to spend so much time with it. I'm going to read it, like, four, five, six, ten times. I'm in the trenches with it. So I really need to love it. I need to be its biggest fan and I need to be able to shout about it constantly to in-house staff, to people on the street, to literally everybody. And I can't do that properly if I'm not in love with it. I'm definitely looking for things like marketability and commercialness, et cetera. But the first thing I'm looking for is, can I not get it out of my head? If I can't stop thinking about it, then I want it. So you fall in love with a book. You've decided, yes, I want to acquire it. What happens now? So Saga's acquisition process is actually fairly simple. Um, I was a children's book editor for seven years at Books for Young Readers at Simon & Schuster. Um, We had a much more complex acquisition process. At BFYR, when you wanted to acquire something, first you brought it to staff, and if it got enough people liked it at staff meeting, then you could bring it to the acquisitions meeting, which was sales and marketing and publicity and subsidiary rights, and everyone who might touch the book who got to read it and give their feedback on whether they think you should acquire it and how much you should pay for it and all that fun stuff. Saga has a much simpler, more streamlined process. If I love a book, I send it around to my team and we discuss it at staff meeting. If my team likes it or can see why I like it and believe in it, even if it's not quite for them, then I get the green light to make an offer. And then it depends on where the agent is. If, you know, if there's an auction situation, if there's a phone call with the author, but that's basically my acquisition process. Is there anything about being an editor that would surprise people? Ah, so my favorite myth about being an editor is that it's a great job for introverts because you get to sit and read all the time. I hear this constantly when I tell people I'm an editor and it is the farthest thing from the truth. In fact, I read almost zero submissions in the office. Uh, Submission reading is entirely train reading. Um, And as I already said, I can't get any editing done at my desk. Uh, But more importantly, as an editor, a huge chunk of my job is being a salesperson. Uh, First, I have to sell myself to agents. 
I need to make friends and develop relationships and make sure they know who I am and what kind of books I'm looking for and why I'm a good person to publish those books in a successful way. Um, that's how I get books because the agents know me and send them to me. Uh, but just as importantly, I'm constantly selling my books. I spent a huge amount of my time pitching my titles at sales conference, to the sales force, to designers, so they'll give it an amazing cover, to publicists and marketing folks, so they'll come up with great publicity and marketing plans, to subsidiary rights people, so that they'll sell it to foreign markets, to all the in-house people who make a book a success. It's my job, basically, to yell about my titles constantly and be as enthusiastic as possible, because enthusiasm is contagious. And if I'm excited about it, they'll get excited about it, I hope. If I'm not excited about it, they're probably not going to be as excited about it. Um, it's a terrible job for introverts. Um, and once I finish yelling about it to in-house people, then I have to yell about it to everybody else on social media, to everyone I meet, constantly selling my books and talking about my books. Um, it's not a good job for introverts. It's a great job for extroverts. Surprise. How many books do you end up working on in a year? Uh, so I usually publish roughly 10 books a calendar year, but at any given time, I'm working on different parts of at least 15 to 20 books. Uh, just because everything is a constantly rotating schedule. You know, some books you come in and I'm editing a draft, first draft, second draft, third draft. Some books I'm looking at the copy edited manuscript. Some books I'm looking at the first pass pages. Uh, some books I'm working with a designer on the cover. Some books I'm working on the marketing and publicity plan. Some books I'm pitching the sales conference. Some books I am helping with the publicity after the book has already come out. So, you know, there can, be, there can be anywhere from a year to two years, usually more like two years from acquisition to publication. And I'm working on various parts of every book at every stage of that process. So there's constantly juggling different titles at different stages of the publication process at all times. Do you have any books coming out that you want to tell us about? Uh, I had a book come out earlier this month. I'm so proud of. It's called Space Opera by Catherine Valenti. And this is one of those rare instances where you have a ridiculous thing that you love tremendously and then it becomes part of your job. It's Eurovision in space. Oh my gosh. I love Eurovision more than anything I could possibly describe. I mean, enormous Eurovision nerd. And I got to work on this incredible book that is Eurovision in space. Um, and what's wonderful is that it's gotten this amazing reception from readers across the board, including and especially readers who are not familiar with Eurovision. Basically, if you love music and you love space and you love really brilliant, funny books, this book is for you. Um, it sold out its first print run before the book even pubbed. It's been compared um, favorably to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is amazing. Um, and it's just great. Read it. You'll have so much fun. It is the most fun you'll have in a science fiction novel. Also, if you like print books at all, do yourself a favor and get the hardcover because there is a literal disco planet on the cover and it's tactile and it's sparkly and it's a mirror ball. It's amazing. It's the coolest cover I've ever seen. Oh my God. That's incredible. Another book I'm really excited about that doesn't come out until, hold on, what year are we in? I can't remember anymore, but soon it's coming out in a little while. Not so soon, but eventually this is publishing time. Sorry. Uh, Alex, Alexander Rowland's fantasy of fake news, a conspiracy of truths. Um, which, in which a traveling storyteller is falsely imprisoned on charges of witchcraft and treason and brings down a corrupt government from within his jail cell armed only with the power of stories and words, uh, which feels extremely timely. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. Amazing. Uh-huh. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. I want to touch on one more book, which came out last month, actually, but I'm really, really proud of it, and I want to call some attention to it. If you haven't read 
Michelle Baker's Arcadia tr- uh, Project trilogy. The final book, Imposter Syndrome, came out in March, and I'm ridiculously proud of these books. If you haven't read them, the short pitch is Men in Black for Fairies. The longer pitch is that our protagonist, Millie, gets recruited for a top-secret organization that brokers visas between Hollywood and Fairyland. Oh my god. And the longer pitch is that Millie is disabled, mentally ill, and bisexual. Um, But what's wonderful about it is this is not an issues book at all. It's kick-ass and snarky and a lot of fun, but it never glosses over her disabilities or pretends they're irrelevant. They're just part of her and part of what makes her make decisions, sometimes good ones, sometimes bad ones. Um, I've never read a book like that that really embraces and incorporates disability like that. And I love it a lot, and I'm really proud that I got to publish it. Nava, if we want to follow you online and see you talk about more amazing books, where can we find you? Uh, find me on Twitter, um, at Nava W. You can also check out the books I'm working on at SagaPress.com. Now it's time to solve a bookish problem from one of our listeners. Dylan writes in, So I recently got an advanced copy of The Map of Salt and Stars by Jennifer Jukadar. I received this book through a giveaway at a local bookstore, which I think breaks the original contract since I'm not the designated recipient. It was free, so there was no profit. It's amazing so far, and when I'm done, I'd like to discuss it on social media slash Amazon reviews. What's the etiquette for doing so? Does it matter that I'm not the intended recipient? Also, what are the expectations for readers of advanced review copies? Do we keep it on the hush-hush? or just go buck wild with love to rally up support. Bria, what should Dylan do? I like that Dylan is sounds like a real rule follower, which I definitely appreciate. I appreciate so he much. He is just really trying to follow the rules. He's like, this book was not intended for me, but I'm reading it. I can tell he feels I, guilty. I know, it's, it's amazing. Little, it's a little illicit. He's like, I have this, uh, this illicit book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's really cute. Um, I do see books reviewed on Goodreads all the time before they're out, like you're talking about. Um, I also... But I think it is like, it's a little bit like movies, you know, some people get to see it early and those are the people who start to build buzz. Same with books. Um, and I think building those star ratings on Goodreads or Amazon is good for any author, especially if you like it. I don't think that Dylan needs to worry. I don't think the book police are going to come to his house and go, you are read a book that wasn't meant for you. It's an advanced reader copy. You don't deserve that book. No one's coming to get you, Dylan. I think if you're building buzz, I get. I think you can have free reign. What do you think? Oh, Dylan, show that book love. Go buck wild. It's totally okay that you ended up with an arc. Honestly, the important thing is that you don't sell it. The expectation for an arc is that the arc helps build support for the book. So you going butt wild is exactly what the author publisher wants. I'm sorry. I just was gesticulating wildly and like punched my microphone. I'm sorry, Sean. Uh, The best way to do it is to talk about the book during its publication week. If you just can't wait, make make sure the book is available for pre-order and include a pre-order link in your post if you're talking about it on social media. You can make that book love go as far as it can, but there definitely are ways to make it go as further. You know, if you talk about a book before it's even available to pre-order, like it's just going to go into the void. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. Well, I don't know, because on Goodreads, it'll start building your your uh, star numbers and stuff, though. Yeah, but uh, the, the whole thing, the, here's a very important thing, and I think we talked about this during Mer Lafferty's episode about author love. The most, the thing that everybody looks at, and by everybody, I mean publishing, is the author's first week sales. Mm-hmm. So that is the big, 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 big week. So you want to build as much buzz as possible during the week it comes out. So if you can wait to do your Goodreads review, if you can wait to post about it during that first week and include a link to buy the book in whatever post you're making on Twitter or Instagram or whatever it's that's gonna make it that's like the rocket fuel of book love and And i mean it's always good to talk about a book even if it's a book that came out you know 50 years ago but if you get an arc the uh, like my my advice is yes 
totally read it. Don't feel guilty. Show that book love, but like try to do it when the book is coming is about to come out. I think Dylan is like just worried that like this author is going to be like, who is this so and so? They're going to track you down. This fucking nobody read my book in the middle of nowhere. He doesn't deserve this book. No one's tracking you down. No, they're excited about you, Dylan. Yeah, they they like that you like. She does. I hope Dylan ends uh, up with one of my arcs. Yeah, send Dylan one of your arcs. Maybe I will. Maybe I will. Dylan, send us your address. <laughs> Dylan, I hope, I, Dylan, I hope you love learning about women in film history and, and the creature from the Black Lagoon. <laughs> uh, so if you want us to solve your reader problem, send it to readingglassespodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. It's really great for us and helps us reach more readers. Reading Glasses is pleased to offer interactive transcripts of the show through Greta. Go to com slash reading underscore glasses to read and turn your favorite reading glasses moments into clips that you can share out on social media. You can email us at readingglassespodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at Reading G Podcast, on Instagram at Reading Glasses Podcast, on Litzy at Reading Glasses. And you can always follow along on our bookish adventures using the general hashtag Reading Glasses Podcast. Thanks for listening and thanks, thanks for, for reading. reading. So I read this excerpt and immediately thought of you guys. It is from N.K. Jemison's The City Born Great, which is a short story first published in Tor.com. And the excerpt is... And just to add insult to injury, I backhand its ass with Hoboken, raining the drunk rage of 10,000 dude bros down on it like the hammer of God. Port Authority makes it honorary New York, motherfucker. You just got jerseyed. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.